This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, August 5th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. President Trump is enjoying his 10-day vacation doing what he loves most, campaigning. 100 years, I guess, 125 years. Whoever has... The White House, that party tends to lose the midterms. Look, if the Democrats get in, they're going to raise your taxes. You're going to have crime all over the place. You're going to have people pouring across the border. But in terms of what's going on behind the scenes to prepare for the midterms, the president's message is less clear. Last week, a dramatic presentation from top national security leaders underscored the administration's determination to keep the Russians from interfering. We acknowledge the threat. It is real. It is continuing. Our democracy itself is in the crosshairs. This is a threat we need to take extremely seriously. We're not going to accept uh, meddling in the elections. But that sharp warning was undermined by the president himself just hours later. Now we're being hindered by the Russian hoax. It's a hoax. At last night's rally for a congressional candidate in Ohio, the president appeared to be back on message and even expanded it. We got to stop meddling. We got to stop everybody from attacking us. But there are a lot. Russia's there. China's there. Hey, we're doing well with North Korea, but they're probably there. We'll talk with White House Counselor Kellyanne Conway, plus the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, about election security. Then, as America's students head back to school this month, we'll take a look at the state of education with former Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan. We'll have political analysis on all the news coming up on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin this morning with counselor to the president, Kellyanne Conway, who joins us from her home in New Jersey. Kellyanne, always good to have you with us. Thank you, Margaret. Uh, the president and his national security team made statements that to most people sounded very different in the characterization of what Russia did and is doing now with our elections. And we just played those clips of how unequivocal the language was from his national security team. Why isn't the president echoing that same and amplifying that same message? Well, Margaret, it was the president's idea to have his national security team go to the podium in the White House press briefing room to go and share with the country and indeed the world that Russia meddled in the 2016 election. There continue to be active cybersecurity, cyber warfare uh, campaigns, if you will, by North Korea, Iran, China, certainly Russia. And this president wants to make very clear that he was not the president in 2016 when evidence of Russian interference and meddling in our democracy in 2016 was presented to that president and his security team and buried because they wanted the other person to win and indeed thought she would win the presidency. This president is not burying it. I was in that briefing with the president the Friday before, and I was there to witness firsthand when the president directed his national security team to go and tell everyone what's happening. I think also earlier last week, you saw Secretary of Homeland Security Kirsten Nielsen and our Vice President Mike Pence up in New York hosting a cybersecurity conference where they made very clear cybersecurity and election security are important priorities. I would note that according to most objective analyses, the number one topic this calendar year by the mainstream media on television is, is in fact Russia and the elections. 
And, and yet, when the president says Russia hoax, he's not talking about Russia meddling. He's been very clear about that as his team, and he was very clear in Ohio last night. Thanks for playing the clip. The president, when he says Russia hoax, he means the investigation and some others on TV, never under oath, wanting to suggest that somehow Russia meddling in the 2016 election was successful in changing a single vote or indeed the electoral outcome. And we know that. We know Judge T.S. Ellis in that Virginia courtroom mm -hmm. in the Manafort trial has specifically instructed folks to not mention Russia, Trump, or collusion. That but, hardly stops but, people from going on TV mentioning I, Russia, collusion, and Trump. I, I hear your point, and, and that message from the podium was very clear, which is why the question is, why is the president not drawing a more clear distinction to what you just drew, which was a difference between his election, uh, the validity of it or questions around that, and uh, the facts as presented by the national security team. I mean, the national security advisor today said Russia was the principal violator in 2016, and their activity now puts them in the lead, not North Korea, not China. No, I was making the point about this cyber warfare all across the world. But in terms of the meddling, there's no question. And Ambassador Bolton has made that clear, Director Ray, Secretary Nielsen, Director Coates. And they work for the president who asked them to go and share with everyone what he had heard unclassified the Friday before. I was there. So I want to repeat that. And you saw last night in Ohio the president talking about Russian meddling, that it has to stop, others need to stop. But when he talks about the hoax, he's talking about this fantasy this unproven fantasy that somehow the campaign that I successfully managed for the successful part of the campaign was in cahoots with Russians. As you know, Margaret, because you covered it. I, we were, our campaign was talking to people in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, and Macomb County, Michigan, not in Moscow. And the president has every right to wonder why, where there seems to have been nefarious activity, folks don't want to investigate. They don't want to investigate the loser. The number four at the Department of Justice's wife working with the people at GPS, at Fusion GPS and the Steele dossier. There's a new FOIA request now mm -hmm. against uh, former minority leader Harry Reid and his, his potential action there. We know that Christopher Steele uh, talked about the dossier 12 times after President Trump tried to initiate a conversation about that 12 times after President Trump was elected. And so, yes, there we'll is frustration about, we'll that the loser that and the people trying to prop her up as a weak candidate have not been investigated. We will talk about some of that with one of the people handling some of the investigation there uh, ahead in the show. But I do also want to ask you, since I know you speak to the president, um, can you clarify some of his statements in the past 24 hours, particularly on Twitter? He's not the only president to have an adversarial relationship with the press, but his language really seems to have escalated today, saying that the fake news media cause war and they're very dangerous and sick. What wars have journalists started? Margaret, I think the president's entire point is this, that we do have a, a news media that includes some reporters. So this should not be a broad brush by any a statement. I've said that before. His daughter said it last week. And I know he believes it's not all. That's why he said it, it really refers to those who aren't always telling the truth and who are giving emotion over information who are talking more about their own egos than doing everyman interviews. I was at that rally with the president in Pennsylvania on Thursday. I walked around and talked to people in the crowd. They're so excited about what they see in terms of progress and prosperity. Some members of the press tend to cover the parts of the rally that were about the press. Mm -hmm. But most of the people hear the major part, which is about the people and the progress and the prosperity. But you Look, know, Margaret, you're a serious reporter. You've worked your way to the anchor seat at Face the Nation. You were a foreign war correspondent. The idea that you share an industry with the New York Times opinion writer who had racist tweets a couple short years ago, cancel white people, do they burn as quickly in the sun? Just really terrible but things. Kellyanne, and then, of know, course, Mark Caputo Politico this week going to the rally in Tampa, excuse but you me, know and referring to Trump supporters as, quote, Garbage people, but if you put them I all together, you have a full set of teeth. I know you're sensitive to security That's concerns state of journalism because today. you've been the, the victim of some targeting, and I know you're yes. sensitive to this. So can't you understand the difference, though, uh, when the president escalates, that there is actually, at times, physical danger, potentially, that there is a risk here, that the president may want to change that rhetoric? The president wants people to give information, news they can use, and I got to tell you, there are 
a large, a, a growing swath of, of reporters, all of whom, or most of whom I feel like I have a decent relationship with, uh, that are sitting in the press briefing room who have contracts on cable TV where they say things, and they say things on Twitter they would not get away with in print. It would not pass even the most virulently anti-Trump editor's desk. And so I think those standards are much lower on Twitter for these journalists, certainly on TV. Mm -hmm. I've been talking about this for two straight years now since the campaign. I think the temperature needs to be dialed down overall. And but, you don't uh, believe that journalists are the enemy get, of the people? I don't believe journalists are the enemy of the people. I think some journalists are enemy of the relevant. Thank you. And enemy of the news you can use. And I think that most of the, most of the sins are sins of omission, not commission, meaning why wouldn't right. more reporters, Margaret, cover the vice president receiving the remains of our fallen in North Korea? Why less than a minute on one of the major cable stations? Why well, wouldn't we covered they cover it here more on the president Kelly, held Kelly forth with African-American pastors? CBS. And I know... Uh, and, and look, I'm much more... i got to tell you, I don't mention the journalist by name. I don't, I, I don't mention mm -hmm. the journalist by name, but I'm much more interested in the work of Alex Acosta than Jim Acosta, our labor secretary, <laughs> because he's presiding over an economic boom. We, we, if Kelly, boom was we, predicted, we boom have is to leave we have that. in our economy. We have to leave it here, um, unfortunately, Kellyanne. But I do want to get to some of the other topics we touched on with our next guest. So thank you. Uh, we're going to bring in California's Adam Schiff, the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, who joins us from Portland, Oregon this morning. Congressman Schiff, uh, some of the investigations or lack thereof were just uh, laid out by Kellyanne Conway from the White House. I want to give you a chance to respond to criticism that she has leveled uh, in terms of congressional investigations. Well, look, I think it was a broad effort to distract from the president's comments. And as you pointed out, Margaret, the president can't distinguish between any allegations of conspiracy against his campaign uh, and the broader problem of Russia continuing to interfere in our elections. Uh, Dan Coates said this week that Russian efforts are pervasive in terms of their so social media campaign to divide us. That's going to continue to the election. Uh, we see that the Russians are again trying to spearfish and potentially hack election campaigns. The only element we have not seen to date, as Director Ray said, is the hacking of voter registration databases or voter equipment. But as uh, our intelligence chief said, that's just one keystroke away. And probably the biggest thing that the president could do is confront Moscow to establish some kind of deterrent. But instead, exactly the opposite message is being sent. And that is, uh, and I think this was delivered in Helsinki, as long as the Russians interfere on Donald Trump's side in the midterms, Vladimir Putin can count on the president to never call him out. And that leaves us all too vulnerable. Congressman, before we go any farther, because I want to draw a distinction, since we've been saying here that some of the facts can get muddled here in the president's language. I want to make sure we're being precise in our conversation. Can you agree that there has been no evidence of collusion coordination or conspiracy that has been presented thus far between the Trump campaign and Russia? Uh, no, I don't agree with that at all. I think there's plenty of evidence of collusion or conspiracy in plain sight. Now, that's a, a different statement than saying that there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt of a criminal conspiracy. Bob Mueller will have to determine that. But, of course, right. the entire so meeting you're, you're, you in Trump Tower... You acknowledge that the FBI has not presented it thus far. I, I'm, I'm drawing this uh, distinction no, because what, this is what the White Margaret, House is arguing here, that the president is drawing a distinction, that he is saying when he says hoax and witch hunt that he means one thing and that it's not... Uh, really trying to disassociate himself from what his national security team says? Well, well first of all, we haven't seen what Bob Mueller uh, has produced in terms of the evidence yet. So in terms of FBI proof, they're not going to present proof to the Congress. We're doing our own investigation, and we've revealed evidence, I think, that certainly goes to the issue of conspiracy and collusion, a lot of which is now public. Uh, but I do think that the president uh, continues to cast doubt on whether he accepts the fundamental conclusion that Russia intervened, whether there was a conspiracy or not. He continues to raise questions about it. Indeed, his attempt to retract his statement in Helsinki that he doesn't see why the Russians would intervene, that goes well beyond any allegations of conspiracy. So it's the president himself who's created this very muddled message. And the issue, I think, for us in the midterms is what message is Putin hearing? Is he hearing the message that we heard from Coates and Ray and uh, others mm -hmm. in that press conference in the White House, or is hearing the message of the President of the United States. And I fear 
that the message that the, the Kremlin cares most about is what they hear from Donald Trump, and that is still one of denial and cover for the Russians. Is the DNC better prepared for these November races than they were in 2016? I'm sure the DNC is better prepared, and I would imagine the RNC is better prepared, and the states are better prepared, uh, but there's still a great deal more work to do, and I think the states still don't have the resources that they need, and sadly, we did have a vote in Congress on additional funding uh, for the states, and that was voted down by the GOP. Mm -hmm. But yes, they certainly have taken steps, and, you know, Margaret, I will say this, one thing that encourages me, the administration is finally having interagency task force meetings every week uh, led by the DNI's office to make sure that our government agencies are talking to each other. But the fact that many of us, even uh, in leadership positions in the Congress, had to learn about the Russian efforts to hack particular campaigns this cycle uh, from a Microsoft representative speaking publicly in Aspen causes a lot of concern about whether that interagency process is really working. And you are talking about Microsoft disclosing that. I also want to ask you, though, about what the special counsel disclosed uh, a few weeks back, where in that filing he mentioned that there were congressional candidates, at least one of them who was requesting help from Guccifer, which has been linked, of course, uh, by the special counsel to uh, the Russian meddling effort. Do you have any indication who that congressional candidate was or if they are currently in Congress? Well, I can only talk about the public reporting, and there certainly was a lot of public reporting about Russian hacking involving Florida candidates for Congress and Florida incumbents. Uh, and, of course, this is a great concern in terms of the midterms. They not only hacked the DNC, but they hacked the DCCC two years ago. Uh, we tried to get the Republican campaign committee to agree that if a foreign power intervened, as they did in 2016, that we would reject it, that neither party would exploit it, uh, we weren't able to get that agreement from the GOP in 2016. We really need to develop that kind of national consensus mm -hmm. for the midterms, that no matter who a foreign power may intervene on behalf of, both parties have to agree not to exploit it. Uh, and I think one of the chief impediments to getting to that agreement is the President of the United States. You, I know, have been traveling the country uh, helping to raise money for Democrats. Uh, successfully, I hear, more than $3.5 million so far. When you are speaking across the country, do you talk about the Russia probe and do you advise those who are running for office to be speaking about it publicly? I don't advise people running for office around the country to focus on the Russia investigation. I urge them to focus on what they're going to do to put bread on the table, what they're going to do to make sure their constituents have health care. I certainly get questions about it when I travel around the country. And the overarching point that I try to make is... What the Russians did was not in isolation. The Russians, yes, they intervened. They had a preferred candidate in our election, but they've been interfering in Europe and elsewhere for a long time. And it is part of a global attack on the very idea of liberal democracy and comes at a time where we see a real rise of autocrats around the world. And America needs once again to be the champion of democracy and human rights. And that's the context I always try to emphasize. This is much bigger than the last election or even the next election, there is a real risk to the very idea of liberal democracy right now in the world. But does it give you pause when you hear the allegations that this is viewed as a, a witch hunt? When you are campaigning and fundraising, does it give you pause to speak about this probe at risk of giving fodder to that argument? Well, you know, I certainly, I think, I feel a public responsibility, as I do on television, as well as when I do in private, uh, to try to inform the public about what Russia is doing, the risk it poses to our democracy. But also, Margaret, I frankly talk a lot more about the risk to our democracy from this administration in a lot of what you talked about with Kellyanne Conway, and that is, I think we're seeing the, the most uh, comprehensive attack on the freedom of the press in the United States in memory. Uh, I think we're seeing an effort to undermine the independence of our Justice Department, to denigrate our judiciary. Mm -hmm. uh, I talk a lot more on the campaign trail about the threat to our democracy from within than anything that the Russians are capable of doing. Congressman, thank you for joining us this morning. We'll be back in a moment with former Secretary of Education under President Obama, Arne Duncan. We'll get his take on what's working and what's not working when it comes to America's schools. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. 
But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading, and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com slash save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com slash save. We're back with former Education Secretary Arne Duncan. He's the author of a new book, How Schools Work, coming out this week. Uh, thank you for joining us. Good morning. In, Thanks in, for having me. I appreciate in, the opportunity. <laughs> sure. It was interesting reading this because you find out more about you personally as well. I don't think a lot of people knew you played professional basketball for two years. A long time ago. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm lucky to have that chance. Um, so some colors and personal anecdotes, but you also really, it's not so much about how schools work, but really an indictment of how schools aren't working. It's a very critical take in this book about the education system. And you say the education system runs on lies. What do you mean by that? That's a, that's a tough statement to make, but let me just give you a couple of those. Um, we say we value education, but we never vote on education. We never hold politicians accountable, local, state, or national level, for getting better results, higher graduation rates, more people graduating from college. We say we value teachers, but we don't pay teachers, we don't support them, we don't mentor them the way they need to do their incredibly important, tough, complex work. And then maybe the toughest lie for me, Margaret, is that we say we value kids, and we've raised a generation of young people, teens, who have been raised on mass shootings and gun violence. And that simply doesn't happen in other nations. So I don't look at what people say. I look at their actions. I look at their policies. I look at their budgets. And our values don't reflect that we care about education, we care about teachers, or that we truly care about keeping our children safe and free of, and free of fear. Do you feel you made a dent in any of that when you were education uh, secretary? We had some you know, real successes. We had some failures. But on the success side, we put more than a billion dollars into high-quality early childhood education, which I think is the best investment we can make. We saved more than 300,000 teacher uh, jobs around the country when the economy was really in a, a very tough spot. We put $40 billion into Pell Grants about going back to taxpayers for a nickel to make college more affordable. So things that we're very, very proud of, but this is not a mission accomplished moment. Our, obviously, I, I feel a huge sense of urgency. We have to get better faster. As a nation, we're not top 10 in anything. I want to ask you, though, before we go further about where we are now, to ask you about your own performance, because the Department of Education had a report uh, looking at school improvement grants, a program you helped oversee, and funneled, you said a billion there, there was a total, I think, seven no, billion, seven, seven billion yeah. in the whole program uh, into some of the worst performing schools to try to improve them. The report, I want to read you this quote, found overall across all grades, we found implementing any school improvement grants funded model had no significant impacts on math or reading test scores, high school graduation, or college enrollment. <clears throat> enrollment excuse me. That's a pretty harsh criticism. How do yeah, you respond? No, I think investing in our lowest performing schools is some of the hardest and most important work we can do, Margaret. I don't want to leave any kid behind or say they can't make it. As a nation, we had more than 2,000 dropout factories a few years back. We now have less than 800. But this sounds like a failing grade from the Department of Education. Yeah, no, you always want to get better faster. And again, it was a short period of time they measured. Our high school graduation rates are at all-time highs. Those grants were a small piece of that. There are many things that go into that. And again, this is, we've got a long, long way to go. But to see high school graduation rates at all-time highs, to see, see many fewer students going to dropout factories, those are things we feel really good about. I want to talk to you more uh, on the other side of this commercial break, but we have to take one. So stay with us. We'll talk more about your new book, How Schools Work. We'll be right back with more of our conversation in a moment. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. 
And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. Next Sunday marks the one-year anniversary of the white nationalist rally that resulted in the death of a counter-protester in Charlottesville. On Face the Nation, we will take a special look at the state of race relations in a divided America with Virginia Senator Tim Kaine and the mayor of Charlottesville, Nikaya Walker. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation and our discussion about schools with former Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan and our political panel, so stay with us. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We are back now with more of our conversation with former Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan. Good to have you on. We've been talking about this book you just wrote, and in it, uh, you're very critical of the state of our schools right now. You say there's a lot more work to be done. One specific criticism, you say, it's there's a distinction between proficiency and growth when you're measuring how students actually perform. You say not everyone understands that, including the current Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. What do you mean? So what I'm interested in is how much students are improving each year. So proficiency is just on an absolute basis where you are today. I want to know how much you're getting better each year. So if you're learning two years of material for a year's instruction, that's amazing work by the child, but more importantly, great, great work by that teacher. And we, have to, we need to recognize that and reward that. Pretty basic concept for folks that work in education. Unfortunately, the current Secretary of Education didn't understand that one. And what exactly is it that you think she is failing to understand or follow through on here? Because she has kept a number of the Obama administration programs. It's interesting. You probably saw the news. It's, for me, it's just a crazy metaphor that about a week ago her yacht was found adrift, $40 million yacht just out there. And for me, that sort of represents where they are in terms of education policy. There isn't one. What does her and personal wealth have to do with that? It, it doesn't have anything to do with it. It's just that it, her, her, the policy is adrift. There's nothing out there of substance. We should have some concrete goals as a nation. I would argue uh, high-quality access to pre-K for every single child. We got high school graduation rates to 84%. They should be trying to get that to 90%. We should be trying to lead the world in college completion. None of those are on the radar. They talk about small things. And that, for me, is it's, it, we're selling our nation short. This is our, and a great education is our way to have a stronger economy. We have to educate our way to a better economy. You don't hear any of that. We don't have big goals. It should be bipartisan, nonpartisan. One of the things that the current secretary has been an advocate for in the past are school vouchers, also school choice. What is it specifically that you have a problem with when it comes to using some of these public fundings, in essence, to allow some students to go to private schools? Yeah, so I think, again, public money should be used to support public schools, and that could be traditional schools, that could be high-performing charter schools. I don't care the name of the school. I just want more high-performing schools, less dropout factors. Doesn't it come as a reflection in some ways of greater parental involvement if they're trying to take that option? I, we're all for parental involvement. I think public dollars should be used to support high-quality public education. The vast majority of our children in our nation always have and always will go to public schools. We have to make sure those are absolutely as strong as possible. I, should, I think we need a different model. We need to think about a, a pre-K through 14 model. We've had a K through 12 model for 100 years. I think that's a little outdated. We have to start earlier, and a high school diploma is great. It's not enough. We've got to think about some form of higher education, community college, four-year universities beyond that as well. In the book, you make a point that we're not training children to, to enter the current workforce. It's more sort of factory worker mentality. Yeah. What is it that you think needs to be added here? How we think critically, how we work in teams, how we solve problems. Those are the kinds of skills that all employers are looking for, not rote memorization, not just sitting in a class, you know, memorizing things. And again, this is where these are places where we could go much, much further and do it with a real sense of urgency. For me, the competition isn't other countries. It's can we do it here ourselves? And if we can do that, our kids are extraordinary. We just have to give them a better chance. We have to meet them halfway. 
When you were Secretary of Education, uh, the tragedy in Sandy Hook happened. Mm -hmm. We've seen yet another tragedy on President Trump's watch now, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting, and those uh, teenagers have become very politically active uh, on the heels of that. But equally, very little change at the federal level, all really at the local. Is that what the expectation should be, that communities have to figure out how to fix this issue themselves? No, I think we all have to do this. And I will say, Margaret, this is our, I think our greatest failing is that we don't value the lives of our children. Children in other nations don't die like they do here. And you know, the Sandy Hook massacre was the worst day of President Obama's presidency, was our worst day there. He went out the next day to visit families. The vice president and I went down a couple of days later. Uh, none of us ever anticipated 20 babies and five teachers and a principal being slaughtered. And the fact that we got nothing done, zero, in terms of gun legislation after that um, is it, heartbreaking. Um, I've been very pessimistic on, the, on that issue, but the students from Parkland, Florida, have given me a real sense of hope. And young people, whether it's in Parkland, whether it's back home in Chicago, young people I'm working with here in D.C., uh, as I said earlier, we've raised a generation of teens on mass shootings, on gun violence. We have failed as adults and parents to protect them. And they're saying they're not going to tolerate it. And I'm actually very, very hopeful that the young people who are going to lead our nation where we as adults have failed to take them. And that's to a place free of trauma and free of fear. The book is How Schools Work by Arnie Duncan. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll be right back with our panel. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you, that's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. It's time now for some political analysis with our panel. Mark Landler covers the White House for the New York Times. Leslie Sanchez is a CBS News political contributor. Sungmin Kim covers the White House from Capitol Hill for the Washington Post. And Paula Reed is a CBS News correspondent. Great to have you all here. Always a lot to chew on, but Paula, this, <laughs> this should be, we should have our own legal panel here because I feel like there's so much to digest from this week. Let's start with the president's tweets this morning. Mm -hmm. uh, he is out there defending his son and saying that he has no concerns about him legally and this meeting that he took at Trump Tower with uh, a lawyer linked to the Kremlin. Should he be concerned? Yes, he should be concerned, even more so than he should be concerned for himself. Because Donald Trump Jr. does have some legal exposure here. And the fact that he has not yet been interviewed by special counsel investigators, that should concern everyone. Because typically in an investigation like this, you want to come in early. You want to be someone they're gathering evidence for, uh, from rather, not the person who walks into the room and they have a pile of evidence and they start going through it. Now, his potential legal exposure, the first is for, for anyone who walks into the situation, lying. But in a case like this, where there are all these different iterations of what happened in that Trump Tower meeting, that's a, a tremendous exposure for him. The possibility of perjury. He says he did not know. His father did not know about the Trump Tower meeting. Michael Cohen said he did. I think, legally speaking, it would be easy to discredit Cohen as a witness. And if uh, Mueller thought there was something there, he likely would have handed that case off. But then the big question of the entire case is, was there any coordination or support or assistance with the Russians in term of, terms of disseminating that dirt that they had? Now, at the time, the first version of events given by the White House was that this was a meeting about adoptions linking to uh, an issue of concern for the Russian government. The president today says, no, it was about opposition research solely, and there's nothing illegal about that. Exactly. The good news for them is there's no crime in lying to the press. Uh, but what they need to do is they need to figure out what exactly their story is, and it needs to be supported by the evidence. They need to make sure there's no witnesses or other evidence that would contradict that and expose them to lying when they sit down with investigators. But the special counsel does have questions uh, for the president about why that statement was drafted, sort of misleading people about the reason for this, this meeting. Mark, when we had Kellyanne Conway on the show, she was trying to explain that 
the president, when he uses this term Russian hoax, is referring to misunderstandings or misconstruing of facts related to the investigation and that it has nothing to do with what his national security team says. You've been writing about the fact that they're saying two different things about the same topic, actually, which is the view on Russia, period. Yeah, this is a, a, a recurring theme with the Trump White House, which is the efforts of, of his aides to sort of narrow the, the scope of what he's saying. When he talks about a Russian hoax, particularly in a tweet or in some of the inflammatory ways he does, he's really denigrating the entire effort to get at Russian interference in American elections and, frankly, to guard against interference in the midterm elections. And so I think that this week we saw this just amazing split screen where the administration arrayed all its top uh, intelligence and law enforcement officials behind the podium at the White House made this persuasive presentation about how seriously they take the threat and what they're going to do to try to fend it off. And then a day later, hours later, at a political rally, President Trump, in effect, dismisses the whole thing as much ado about nothing. For Kellyanne Conway to say, well, he's only narrowly talking about an investigation, no one in the American public is taking it that way. They're viewing it as what I think the president intends, which is to diminish the importance of the issue. And I think the reason he does that goes back to his own long long-standing uh, doubts about the legitimacy of his own election and his concern that if he gives this any credibility, it will reduce his own credibility. And so I think that this split screen is really what matters and not the after-the-fact attempts by the White House to spin it. Is the effort here to manage pu the public understanding of the Russian investigation, or is it to manage the president's own party? Because what you hear consistently from the Republican establishment is that they stand with the intelligence community and their version of events, not the characterization a as a hoax. I think it's a little bit of... It's, it's multiple things. I think in terms of the public perception of Russia and also with, we talk about how, along with the Mueller investigation, we talk often about how the president's constant tweeting and his attacks on Mueller is partially to just publicly discredit the investigation. So you do see that kind of... With an eye towards what could happen... Exactly. With a potential impeachment. Exactly. And you saw the shock coming from Capitol Hill right after his comments in Helsinki alongside Vladimir Putin. But I think that whenever we ask congressional Republicans, you know, look at the president's rhetoric, a lot of times they do point towards, well, look at what Dan Coats is saying or what Secretary Nielsen is saying or Director Ray. They're satisfied with what, uh, what the, his administration officials are saying. But, you know, that is a different message coming from his top officials versus the president. Leslie, I know you've been out there doing some reporting. Mm -hmm. Does all of this translate to people at home um, and, and people who are going to go place votes in November? Big disconnect, right. So what the Republican Party is thinking is they want to buck traditional norms. They want the president not to have the major losses that most president would have at a midterm election when these midterms tend to be a referendum on the president. They're saying, wait a minute, we have raised $250 million this election cycle. We have $50 million in the bank, meaning the Republican Party. And they're ready to marshal those resources on the ground. And they understand what the president understands, which is very much to this point, the pulse of the people. What used to be a roar in the Republican Party is now a whisper because the economy is strong. The president is now at 50 percent approval, more or less. Congress is still at 10 percent approval. And they see that unemployment's low. And they can win. They may like the agenda. They may not like the man. Paula, just to button up one part of the legal question this week, and that was uh, <laughs> so the, many. <laughs> the former Trump campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, mm -hmm. was in court last week. He, he will be headed back there. There was all this color about his personal wealth, his clothing. Um, <laughs> what is the prosecution trying to lay out here in terms of the picture? Well, as the judge likes to continue to remind everyone, he is not on trial for having a lot of money and throwing it around. This trial has nothing to do with the president, has nothing to do with the campaign. The allegation is that he made tens of millions of dollars from lobbying on behalf of Ukrainian politicians, but instead of having the check sent to one of his six houses, he had it put into offshore bank accounts. And then in order to allegedly get this money into the U.S., he laundered it through these luxury purchases. And that's where we get some of the color. The homes, the cars, the ostrich coat. Yes. Uh, and so that's their theory of the case. But it is important to remember we did hear from some of their uh, his accountants uh, late in the week and there was evidence that some of this conduct, especially doctoring forms uh, when he wanted to try to get some loans, some of that conduct did extend to his time uh, in the Trump campaign. 
Is there any connection to the president and what has happened so far? So far, no connection to the president. Uh, Kellyanne Conway, she cited the judge. But let's be really clear what the judge has said um, about the special counsel investigation. During the, the preliminary hearings, the judge had questions about whether or not tax evasion or bank fraud, whether or not that was in the special counsel's authority. The judge came out and said, you're not interested in bank fraud. You're just trying to get this guy to cooperate in your investigation. Everyone sort of nodded and acknowledged this was a fact, and he allowed the case to proceed. But the president and his allies, they've seized on those comments to try to say the special counsel investigation is illegitimate or a federal judge said they were out of bounds. But the judge has sort of nodded to exactly what's going on here. Mark, do we have any idea, turning to the foreign policy front, what was in the letter from President Trump to Kim Jong-un that was handed off this weekend to North Korean officials? We don't know the specifics of what's in that letter, but I think we have a fairly good idea, based on the president's own characterization of his recent interaction, that it was probably a very friendly letter thanking Kim for the letter he had sent uh, and probably setting the predicate for another meeting. There's a lot of talk about maybe doing it <clears throat> Pardon me, at the United Nations in September. Um, but again, to go to this, it's a recurring theme with this administration, this notion of a dissonance or a split screen. You have this very cozy, friendly relationship uh, being built between Kim and Trump. And then underneath, you have this very combative, even sometimes bitter negotiation between Mike Pompeo and his counterpart on the issue of denuclearization. Uh, and you saw that in stark terms, even as um, an American diplomat was handing the letter to the North Koreans in Singapore to deliver to Kim, another North Korean official was lambasting the United States and Mike Pompeo uh, for their bad attitude in the negotiations. And so what you see, and, and I think it's deliberate on the part of the North Koreans, is an effort in a way to drive a wedge between the president and his own negotiators. Kim thinks that President Trump uh, is sincere and well-meaning and well-intentioned and wants to have a good relationship, but those pesky diplomats keep <laughs> demanding that North Korea do all these things to denuclearize. It's a pretty effective strategy. It puts Mike Pompeo in a very bad spot because he's the guy uh, who has to deliver this deal. Um, and he's been very forthright about saying he sees a long, difficult negotiation ahead of the United States and North Korea. And he acknowledged, he said, the timeline is going to be up to Chairman Kim. Thus far, no denuclearization that we have seen at the moment. We're going to take a quick break here. We have so much more to talk about, so stay with us. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. We are back now with our panel. Uh, Sungmin Kim, I want to ask you, uh, the president has already been out there on the campaign trail three times this week. He was in Ohio last night ahead of the special election. We also learned that former President Obama is going to be hitting the campaign trail pretty soon and laid out his endorsements. Is, are they going to be going head to head? It'd be interesting to see what that, if that happens and where there can be the most influential. I think one test case of that could be in the Georgia governor's race where we've seen uh, Stacey Abrams as one of the 80 candidates that the former president put his muscle behind when he made his announcement or endorsement announcements over the week. Uh, but the president, uh, President Trump, has also put his political power behind the Republican candidate there. Remember in that primary, it looked as if the more 
the, per the perceived more mainstream candidate, Casey Cagle, would have won the primary, but President Trump weighed in with a tweet and boom, went Brian Kemp and winning that nomination. So that could be an interesting state considering all the dynamics in Georgia where the two presidents could go head to head. But uh, the president's uh, political power and how much he matters is really going to be on display in that special election this Tuesday. I mean, we mm -hmm. saw him go last minute, try to get that last minute surge for Republican Troy Balderson, uh, you know, ahead of the election on Tuesday. But people are, are already drawing parallels to that special election that we had in Pennsylvania um, back in March, where it's a very Republican district. Uh, the president had won that district by 20 points, but it was the Democrat who uh, surged to victory in that race. Uh, there's already a lot of nervousness among the Republican Party about whether they're going to lose a seat. This is a seat that went for President Trump by 11 points. This is a seat that the Republicans should win, but outside groups are pouring so much money into this race, um, and it'll be a major uh, backlash for Republicans if uh, Democrats emerge victorious there on Tuesday. Leslie, do you expect the seat to be you know, flipped? Uh, I don't. I, I don't. Um, it, it, a lot of people would like to think that that's the case, but I think there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of undercurrent underneath this wave. We say there's the big blue wave with a lot of pink boats, the female candidates, the non-traditional <laughs> candidates that are coming in. We like. But I, I, in this case, when the president does, in most cases, marshal his resources, get the party behind him, put all those dollars in, that was really the message of the summer meeting in Austin last week, that you get on board or you get out. This president is going to win. You need to get his message and really champion that. But I think there's some He anomalies. made that clear in Ohio last night. He right? really did. They, and he saw it. And the, and the word is coming down, which is why I say the, the Republican Party went from a roar to a whisper. They're like, well, he's winning. So at what cost do they win? But there's interesting issues like that. And I'd also point to a non-traditional place like uh, Texas uh, Congressional District 31, which you have MJ Hager, which is the female candidate the, the, the uh, veteran um, uh, helicopter pilot who's running, who's raising tr four times as much as her incumbent opponent, Republican area. She used to be a Republican, running as a Democrat, getting a lot of interest, and Republican women are taking her seriously and now looking at holding fundraisers for her. So there's a lot of fissures within what these swing districts or even Republican safe districts would look like. And when you listen to the president when he speaks at these rallies, it sounds like a greatest hit. Some of the things that during his own campaign really mm -hmm. seem to resonate with his face in terms of immigration uh, and the press, Mark. Yes. <laughs> enemy of the people. Uh, Kellyanne Conway said she doesn't believe that the media is an enemy of the people. This is obviously useful for the president. He cites it frequently. Why does he argue this? Well, as you say, it plays wonderfully with his base, um, and uh, it's been a hit for him throughout the campaign, and it continues to be one of the most popular things. When you go to a Trump rally, uh, it almost has such a feeling of ritual now, and there's certain things that people who go to rallies expect, and one of the things they expect is the opportunity to uh, start chanting CNN sucks and to turn around and, uh, you know, vilify the people standing in the media pen. So that's why he does it. Um, I think that the problem that we're running into uh, is that his repeated and methodical use of the phrase enemy of the people, and he did it as recently as this morning when he also suggested that people in the media cause wars to happen, um, is that that phrase is particularly loaded. Um, the phrase fake news, which he also uses, uh, is corrosive to the credibility of the media over time. It's, it's unfair. He shouldn't use it. But the phrase enemy of the people is, I think, a whole different order of magnitude. This is a phrase that has a long historic provenance. It goes back to the French Revolution. It goes back to Stalin, to Mao, to Lenin. Um, people in those totalitarian societies use the phrase enemy of the people to suggest that one group in society was subhuman. And by doing so, it opened the door to all kinds of violence being carried out against them. I'm not saying that President Trump understands the historical uh, provenance of this phrase, but people who are seeing it out in the world certainly do. So by using it over and over again the way he does, I think he opens the door to the possibility of bad things happening. Now, we've been really lucky. We've been through many, many, many rallies during the campaign and since he's been president, and there really hasn't been a spillover to outright violence. It's been more in the realm of menacing reporters, and it's scary, uh, mm -hmm. but, you know, I don't think any of us have really uh, had, had anyone take a swing at us. 
But the, the fear I have is that by continuing to do this, by normalizing this language, by making it part of the vocabulary of the country, he does open the door to have, to have some violence happen mm-hmm. down the road. And I think that's just extraordinarily dangerous. Uh, and that's why I ask it, because I know many of us find it uncomfortable talking about journalists, being them ourselves. Um, Paula, family separation. Uh, tell me where we are with the administration trying to reunify families. They're not completely done with this yet. There's still a long way to go. And I think this is one of the clearest examples of the president sort of coming out with a policy, not all the key players being on the same page. Almost exactly what we saw with the travel ban, too. And we saw, well, yes, it's a deterrent, deterrent. No, it's not a deterrent. No, this is a new policy. No, this isn't a new policy. And they've created quite a legal quagmire for themselves. So there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of reunifying the families. And then the big question of, well, what exactly is the administration's policy at this moment? And if you cross the border into the U.S. illegally, will you be detained together as a family? Will you be separated? What exactly happens to you? And about roughly 400 or so families. If that may be the last number, yes. All right, thank you very much. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, we will be back with you then with a look at race in America one year after Charlottesville. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were White House Counselor Kellyanne Conway, California Democrat Adam Schiff, and former Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.